This is the Productivity Minute, Episode 22. This is another extended episode. It is an interview with John Heap, Managing Director of the Institute of Productivity, on Sean in the Shed, a video podcast delivered live daily on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome back to Sean in the Shed. On the show today, we've got John Heap, who's the Managing Director of the Institute of Productivity, joining us from Leeds. Welcome to the show, John. Thank you very much. Good to be here. And perhaps we can start by uh, describing where you were born, educated and how you started out in your career. Okay, I was born when I was very little. (laughs) Now, I was born in Manchester, actually, in a place called Eccles. There's only real claim to fame is it's the birth of the Eccles cake, if you know what one of those is. Um, I had a good kind of grammar school education, went off to university. My, both my wife and I, who met, who we met at school, both had the same inspirational chemistry teacher. So we both did chemistry at university, and I hated it. I hated it with as much passion as I liked it at school. But I was lucky because I did my degree at UMIST, University of Manchester Institute of Technology, and I did a subsidiary course in what they call management science, so things like operational research. So I, that's what got me into productivity, really, and I found that much more interesting than the chemistry. So I spent my last year trying to find a route out of chemistry and into something more interesting for me. And I actually joined a company called BICC, the cable makers, as a trainee work-study engineer. And I did a year's, what was in effect, I suppose, an apprenticeship. I did three months of classroom teaching, classroom learning, then nine months on the job learning, which was just amazing because they had they had a particular policy in BICC where if the work study department set a time for a job uh, and the union queried that time, said, we don't think it can be done in that time, then the work study department had to do a full shift and achieve that target time over the full shift. So it was a very interesting way of showing the times were possible. Uh, and that means, of course, that the work study department had to have people like me who were recent graduates, but also people who were off the, off the job, who were ex-tradesmen and so forth. And I learned a lot from working alongside them on improving what they knew about. So I would ask the questions, but they often supplied the answers. And I think that's what got me into one of my uh, passionate things, which is you've got to listen and you've got to actively listen, not just, you know, ju- not just ask the questions, but listen. There's a great old saying, which is that God gave us two ears and one mouth. So listen twice as much as you talk. Sorry, I'm talking too much. No, no, I totally agree. And uh, I think within this recessionary environment, clearly governments, businesses are interested in upping productivity um, to improve GDP at a national level. A lot of your work is done with the United Nations and overseas and helping factories, manufacturing and agricultural businesses overseas uh, become more productive. So perhaps you can share some stories around some of the projects that the uh, Institute of Productivity have, uh, have endured, I suppose, and got started with. Okay, I'll tell you about a very recent one, actually, which I think I think is quite good. We um, we went to Bangladesh to look at agriculture, and obviously, agriculture. Sorry, Bangladesh has thousands upon hundreds of thousands of very small farmers who each have a small patch of land, and they grow a variety of kind of fruit and vegetables. <laughs> so we went in with the United Nations as a UNIDO, United Nations Industrial Development Organization, and they said, "What can you do?" Well, we, first, first start, we, we, we had uh, a target audience of about half a million illiterate farmers. 
So we had to treat we had to treat them in some way to up, increase their yield. So the first thing we did was to measure their yield because we have a philosophy which says if we can't demonstrate we've made a progress, we don't charge. Right. So when we do a project with the United Nations, we say we'll measure the yield at the start of the project, measure it six months after the project. And if there's no improvement, then we don't get a fee. So we put our money where our mouth is in that sense, I suppose. So what we did then was to work out what we could do very simply in terms of things like, for example, if you take a mango off a tree when it's ripe, if you just hack it off and it falls on the ground, it bruises. And a lot of buyers in the UK won't buy that mango because you know, they, they can't have bruised mangoes in their tin of mangoes or in their mango puree or whatever. So it's how to handle it pre-harvest, post-harvest, how to get it from the, the harvest to the processors and so forth. And we took the whole value chain for the mango and we put it into a diagram and showed the farmers. And we said, look, if you get your mango wrong, if your mango isn't perfect, it leaves your farm, the rest of the chain is working with poor product. And then we talked about, we, we said, we, we, we worked out there were five things we thought they could do to improve the way they delivered their mangoes to the next part of the chain. So we created a simple diagram with a hand, you know, so, see that, with five key things they could do. And they recognized the hand. And what we did then was to paint it on their hands, little symbols, represented those key five points, said, go home at night, study that hand, and come back in the morning and tell us what those pictures remember you know, what they represent. And so we, we did this for about 25 people who were going to be trainers, right? So, so these were kind of either, they were kind of senior villagers or leaders of their local communities, but also farmers. And we, their job was to go and teach the next level down and, and it cascaded down training. So we, we spent about three months training them in both those techniques, those simple kind of lessons, but also in how they might then pass that message down using diagrams, using various stories and so forth. And in the end, we got, we, we trained, I think about a hundred in four groups. They then trained the next kind of thousand. And they next trained the next 200,000. So in the end, in about two years, we reached 200,000 farmers. We went back six months later and measured the yield of those farmers. And we could demonstrate something like a 48% improvement in their yield. Now, the problem is then, of course, you've got to make sure they stay there. Because what, what you often find is you get a lesson over. They say, oh, yes, we've cracked that now. Forget about it. And it's a matter of going back once every year and just checking that they're maintaining those processes, those procedures, those handling, and then still got their five lessons. So that was a very big impact study, which did not involve us very much, except in thinking through the methodology and thinking through those five simple lessons. One of the real things, isn't it, is to make things as simple as you possibly can. You, you've got to get something which, which your audience understands. And when the audience is illiterate, uneducated, you know, then it has to be very simple indeed. I've got another example. Let me just tell you something first. We, we have a uh, a model of productivity, which we call C, S-double-E, because we believe in looking at social, environmental and economic productivity. Now, everybody, no, lots of people concentrate on economic productivity. Quite a few now concentrate on environmental productivity, but very few people look at social productivity. How does, how should productivity be improved to improve the lot of the people involved, the society that creates that productivity? 
So if you look at the typical situation in Britain, if a firm improves productivity, it, it may well sack workers or make them redundant, right? So the society of that community is, is kind of loses value, whereas the company gains. And so we don't like products like we don't like projects like that. So we did another one where we looked at manufacturing in Pakistan of ceiling fans. Went into one factory and it became apparent very quickly that we could make radical improvements. We, we said to the owner of the factory, we could either double your production or half the time it takes to make your current production. So he said, how? So he said, well, it's clearly that you've got too much stuff on your, too much work in progress on the ground in your factory waiting. He said, yes, but remember in Pakistan, the power goes off for three or four hours a day. So I've got to have something to work on. And you think, well, yeah, okay, that does change it. So what we did with him was to take his workforce, which was about 28 people, into groups of four and sit down with them and talk to them about what they did for their job and how they thought it could be made better, both for them, but also for their boss. We say, look, if your boss doesn't earn more money, you're not going to get more money. So eventually they understand that message. Very simple again. So we work with them a little things and so we look for example one of the things first that we looked at was to give them power screwdrivers instead of manual screwdrivers but when your power goes off for four hours a day that does not, that's not going to get very far but we said well is it worth having a power screwdriver for the five or six hours a day you have got power and in the end we did various things but we knew in the end that when we when we agreed with the workers the changes we might make they, they would go along with them because they'd been involved in those decisions those discussions and in the end we did get to the where we thought we would be we got the same production out in half the week we said to the owner can you sell if we double our production can you sell it he said no because the, the market in pakistan is uh it, it's been dominated by china manufacturing obviously and manufacturing ceiling fans is the same so they just they tend to specialize in high quality high value fans for the middle eastern market and because of the muslim collection the Middle East likes to buy from Pakistan rather than China. You know, so they do have a loyalty there. So we said, all right, if you can't sell it, what can we do? And we did a deal with him in the end where he got he got his production in half the week and his cost came down because he didn't run his factory. But he turned his factory over and turned it into a school for the rest of the week and taught the villagers English. Or he got somebody in to talk the village English. He did that for the village, as it were, but he was still saving money the village then was getting lessons and everybody was happy. So, you know, a typical kind of or a true win-win situation. We like projects like that where the community involved gets benefit as well as the owner of the factory, are they? No money. That, that's a great story. Um, so thanks for that, John. If you just joined us, you're watching Sean in the Shed. And on the show today, we've got John Heap, who's the Managing Director of the Institute of Productivity, joining us from Leeds. So if you've got friends, family, and other contacts that might find this video interesting, do tag them in the comment stream. And you can hashtag share Sean in the Shed on social media. We are looking for future guests to the show. So if you're interested, do direct message me here on LinkedIn. But the question that myself and John would like to ask you, the audience today is, how do you improve the productivity of a business? If you've got questions, answers, or opinion on that, do fill in the comment stream. But let's fire that question back to John now. How do you improve the productivity of a business? Because there's the process improvement and there's the people uh, which bit comes first? Um, 
I suppose I, I, you like. I, I'm about to say it, Anthony. It's a cyclical process, so it might well depend on the job. But usually, I, I think always people come first. Really, uh, I mentioned to you before the show that I hate the term human resources. Whoever invented that term should be shot at least twice, because to think you're a human resource, you know, like I don't know, but a, you know, a stick of something or a bit of material is awful. So I believe in people, and I believe in getting the right people working for you. There's a there's a great book called From Good to Great by Jim Collins. And my very, very quick executive summary is that the secret to success becoming a good company is getting the right people on the bus, facing the right way, heading in the same direction. But the real next level of success comes when you get the wrong people off the bus. And that's much harder. Right. So so you have to get have the right people working for you, then you have to develop their skills and their talents. Uh, because they will all have ideas about the work they do. And what you mustn't do is ignore them, belittle them, minimise their contribution or minimise their ability to contribute. But going back to the question, you start off with the mission and vision. What's the company set out to do? Right? What's its mission in life? What Does it have a vision of where it will be in five years, ten years' time? What will it look like in ten years' time? And then the next level is what are the critical success factors? What does he have to do and do well to reach that mission and vision? Right. I'm, I'm, you know, it's a, it's a truism to say things like he has to sell to the customers, has to, you know, but what does he really have to do well to make sure it reaches that vision? And then you set key performance indicators for each of those success factors. So how will we know when we're doing it well? How do we know we're doing it well now? How do we, how do we know how we compare to our competitors and so forth? Once you've got critical success factors, we say, what are the levers of those, those sorry, indicators? What moves it in the right direction? What can I do? And you start developing action plans. And we do that by asking a whole series of questions. I often say I've made my career out asking stupid questions. There's a great little poem, which you've probably heard, by Rudyard Kipling, which says, I had six honest working men. They taught me all I knew. The names were what and why and where, how and when and who. Right, so you ask those questions, you ask, what do we do in this step of the process? Why do we do it like that? And the answer is, when you ask that question, you say, why, why do we do it like this? Because the question is always, we always do it that way. We always have done. That's the way we do it around here. Not good enough, is it? You know? So why do we do it like that? Who does it? Why is it that grade of labour? Why that person? Why that team? Where do we do it? Where in the process? Before this, after that. I worked for a, a company once who made 39 plugs. And they stamped the identity of the plug, you know, safety data on the plug. But they did it before the plugs were scrapped because of the moulding was wrong. So they're stamping all the faulty plugs as well as the good ones. And all they had to do was move that step of the process till after they rejected the faulty ones. And they saved a lot of that stamping process. So what, where in the process is it done? When is it done? You know, uh, Ask those questions and you say, first of all, what do we do? Where is it done? When you say, where is it done? You say then, where could it be done? Where else could we do it? Where should it be done? Why do we do it like that? Why in that way? How else could we do it? How should we do it? And you work through that series of questions and you work through it with the workforce themselves. You ask them, how else could we do this? How, what you've, when you've seen things happen in the past, what, what annoys you about what your work involves? And you find that dissatisfaction with work is a real problem. So when we look at 
what's wrong at the moment you know quality levels might be too low output might be too low but also where are people dissatisfied because it's a real problem if people think something's wrong then it is wrong right because obviously dissatisfaction causes people to lose their motivation to lose their incentives and so forth and we work through that step of going from mission to success factors to kpis to action plans through asking those series of questions and in the end you can work out a whole series of potential uh, answers and what you're trying to do for each step in the process is to eliminate it if you can't eliminate it you're trying to combine it with something else so you can do two things at the same time if you can't combine it you're trying to minimize it right you're trying to identify waste at all times and that's in the lean sense of lean has seven ways and try and minimize identify all the ways involved minimize each one of them and slowly but surely you chip away at things and occasionally you'll have a massive kind of innovation you know a really bright spark of an idea that transforms something but more often than not you're just plugging away and we we, we want to do both obviously we want, we want the big innovations but they're harder to achieve but but if you don't have the chipping away at the small gains at the same time then you and you just wait for the innovation then you're losing a lot of potential now you might have uh, some business improvement initiatives you might evolve the process to be simpler streamlined add more value to the customers um some businesses already have processes in place but the people aren't following the process so that excellence and that compliance isn't there so what what can businesses do for checks and measures to ensure that people follow the process um because repeatable processes are quite boring i guess maybe people want to um, cut corners that could be good for efficiencies or it could be damaging to the customer and the product quality how do you navigate uh, that ensuring that total quality management is there and that uh, people are following processes and that you're policing that in an appropriate way well i think the first thing is to make sure that people understand the process and they're all in it why do they do what they do when they do it where they do it and so on so so give them the answer to those questions we asked before and say look if you get your bit wrong then it all fails there's a great question about uh, jfk once going to nasa you know when he was looking at the moon thing and he came across a, a, i think what they would call a janitor but, but somebody just sweeping up and he said to this janitor he said what's your role here and he said i'm helping people get to the moon you know so he wasn't he wasn't a sweeper up or a cleaner he was helping people get to the moon and, and it's that thing, isn't it, where people understand their role and motivated by their role as a tiny contribution to the overall mission of the company, then you've got a chance of keeping them going. But then you obviously you have standard operating procedures set down. When you've, when you've looked at improving it, you say, this is the job now. It used to be like that, but now this is it. Step by step, what happens? And you have to have people, supervisors and managers going around and checking on that, checking that it's done. On a daily basis, we say you should go to Gemba. And Gemba is a word in lean, which means the place where truth can be found. So you don't say, a manager shouldn't say to a supervisor, what's going on here? And the supervisor says, oh, it's all right, everything's under control. The manager has to go to Gemba, find out by observing and listening at the place where the work is done, what's, what exactly is happening, what should be happening, and where are there any gaps? And if there are gaps, why? And as you say, it might be the workforce has found a better way of doing it. But then you say, oh, let's review that. And if it's true, if it truly is an improvement, let's incorporate it into the standard work, standard operating procedure. But, but if managers don't do their job about observing, then they fail.
Absolutely. And the closer you get to the coal face, the closer you get to that customer truth. Um, but quite often it's the, the quiet people that don't speak up that have sometimes the best ideas. How do you get everybody in the business to have an equal voice and, and, and to get their uh, voice heard? Well, I think one of the problems is what we often do is get people into a, a room and ask them questions. And as we know, some people are great at voicing their opinions in a, in a mixed group. Well, you have to give other people an opportunity to do that, if you like, and on an asynchronous basis. Not quite, not 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 a simple suggestion scheme, but actually get, actually perhaps talk to them on a one-to-one -one basis, right? Or to give them an online or give them a specific email address for improvements or something. But find a way of letting people speak at their own speed, and you know, with their own voice, when they when and how they can. And don't assume that everybody will make a contribution in the meeting. No, that's absolutely true. So let's turn our uh, attention to the crisis now. Obviously, we're in a recessionary environment. How can be productivity be boosted when, uh, as you say, people are losing their jobs, there's less people to service customers? Maybe there are resourcing issues where uh, pe people in businesses are just trying to keep their head above water. Well, I think one of the main things where the government missed a trick, as it were, is they've just paid out billions of pounds to keep lots of people in work under the furlough scheme. Now, why didn't they associate that with training and development? Why didn't they insist that those companies who put their work on the furlough, put them onto training courses of some kind, development courses of some kind, so, so they are improving their skills, ready for the, the comeback, as it were, to full production? I think they missed, missed a trick there, just saying, let, let them stay at home, let them do whatever they want, when they could have saying, look, we're paying money, You're, they're getting their wages, they could do some training. And when it comes to topics such as automation and artificial intelligence, obviously uh, that's going to uh, eliminate certain jobs and it's going to create new jobs. How can businesses and people adapt to that change? And is artificial intelligence a threat or is it a gift in terms of it's, it's actually moving, moving the human beings up the food chain to more interesting work, maybe more creative collaborative work? I mean, that's obviously, that's obviously the theory, and that's what's sold by those people who supply AI and automation. So far, a lot of automation has been what I call co-working. So a lot of the robots in car factories are taking specific jobs, but they're working alongside human beings. And if you can get, if you can get co-working where the robots or whatever, they take the drudgery out of human work and leave you know, the mental bit uh, intact, then that's, that's great. But if you can't, if you're going to replace human work altogether, you've got to be, as a nation, you've got to be sure that you're going to find jobs to do elsewhere. See, one of the great things that I've been through in my lifetime is the closing of the, the pits, you know, the mines, and a closing down of much manufacturing. So what you've got now is a whole section of youth which grows up in those villages where they used to go to the mines, they used to go to the factory, there's no work for them, except for flipping burgers, you know, in McDonald's. And we, we've we've sold a whole generation, as it were, of young males, you know, kind of perhaps poorly educated, and that, that's another problem, but poorly educated males who would have gone into manual work. We've sold them out, as it were, for what? I'm not quite sure what. We, you know, I'm not saying we shouldn't have closed the mines. We, should, we shouldn't, should have closed some of those factories, but we should have done something else to get suitable roles from those people. So it's back to my message about social you know kind of having a social conscience in everything you do in relation to productivity if you create productivity improvement you've got to say what do we do with people left behind 
by that exercise. Now, there must be things we can do. We know, we know things, don't we, that, that they need doing in society, right? And we can't all be tattooists and hairdressers. So we've got to find things we can do that are a benefit to society and will be meaningful to the individuals involved. So to get to that inclusive growth that you just talked about, how can education be a secret weapon? Because there's kids that are going to university. Uh, I say going to university, obviously, with lockdown, lots of kids are learning online or and students. Uh, and then there's the apprenticeship scheme. Um, again, uh, with your education background, are there gaps? Are there things that we're not doing that's pretty basic that if we executed well on, we'd actually improve the wealth and the productivity of the nation? I think, unfortunately, I think the UK has a fundamental flaw in that it only really values academic education. So apprenticeships are very much seen as second best. You know, most kind of manual trades are seen as inferior to, you know, anything that sits at a de desk. And that's increasingly going to be reversed, I think. As automation takes over the kind of the clerical work that we do, people who are involved in manual trades and so forth are going to be valued. If you, if you look at the pain now of a plumber compared to, you know, a clerk in an office, it's tremendous, the difference. So we're going to have to value the physical trades much more. So I think we should be looking, unfortunately, I'm not sure how you do it, but how do you change the culture of a country that says, unless you've got a degree, you're worthless? I, I think the participation rate now in university is too high. I'd want to see much, many more people back in apprenticeships into proper training and structured training, not just sitting next to Nelly, sitting next to Joe, you know, but proper structured apprenticeships. And there are some apprenticeships now which are very good. Uh, and there are apprenticeships in things like management now, which are so are excellent. So I think we have to get back to a situation where we value both the on-the-job training and we value education. You, you made reference to things like online education. I think online education and online training is going to be transformed in the next few years with technology. You know, now you can assess people uh, so that you, you can have a plumber looking at things online, but you actually assess what they're doing by put, putting a camera at them and judging them and asking them the right kind of questions. Um, we're working on a thing at the moment whereby um, in most food factories, there's a big issue about traceability. You know, how do you know that the, the tin you buy in your supermarket, which batch of fish did it come from at the other end of the, the, the supply chain? And we're looking at how do you inspect a factory virtually? You know, you, by sending somebody in with a camera and a microphone and talking to people and pointing it at machines and so forth, you can actually start to inspect. So one very highly paid inspector doesn't have to go to, you know, the far reaches of, you know, Bhutan or somewhere. You can send somebody in locally as long as they're trained on how to use the camera and the microphone. And we're looking at how do we create an inspection regime so that's using the technology again, but as a co-worker, as an aid to the intelligence of a human being. It's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, technology is going to uh, be a big part of our future. And uh, my little lad, he, he might have swimming lessons, cricket lessons and things of that kind. And uh, we're thinking about maybe should he do computer programming lessons uh, remotely? Because if you look at Mark Zuckerberg and Bill Gates, they started programming before they were 10. So maybe there's some simple approaches that parents and, and businesses can do to reskill their workforce, to adapt to this change that's that's happening, because we are in this digital revolution, aren't we? And if anything that the pa pandemic has taught us is that business change and 
the whole business environment to be on the high street or in the office is it is rapidly changing at the moment it's like a perfect storm um to finish off the show now john uh, we ask uh, people to uh, share their top three tips for getting through this crisis there'll be business managers owners and leaders having to make difficult decisions now in the autumn it's going to be uh, pretty tough uh, coming up to christmas so what are your top three tips to share with the audience i think it is to to reevaluate the vision of your company where it's going to be in five years time allowing for the fact that this has happened and may well last another six months so you may all have to change either the direction of travel or the distance of travel over the next five years and how does that affect what you have to do in the next six months to get your employees ready for that different journey then change the training you're giving them in association with that so change so replan and then retrain and then talk to your employees and get them to participate in the decisions you're going to make about their retraining so on the basis that they understand the plan so share the mission widely Sounds like this tectonic change is a big thing across a lot of industries. And therefore, like you say, by the big decision on what is the vision and mission and then executing against that with a new strategy is going to be really important. So change management seems to be a big thing. I would say thank you so much, John, for coming on the show. If people want to connect with you afterwards, you're clearly on LinkedIn. Are there other methods? What's the best way to get in touch? Well, I, I, I actually run a group on LinkedIn called Productivity Futures. It's a it's a it's a closed group, but pe if people apply, I'll almost let them on. So go and look at Productive Futures in the group section of LinkedIn. It's we've got about seven hundred members, and I post at least once or twice a week issues, and other members post as well. So lots of tips about productivity, lots of tools, lots of techniques, lots of books, and so forth. So it's a good source to start with, and they can also contact me through LinkedIn as well. They can message me. And it's been great just talking about productivity. It's important in a recessionary environment, not just for the economic and the environmental, but as you say, the social good and the good for all so that we all share in the wealth and it's uh, inclusive. So thank you, John, for coming on the show. It's very much appreciated. Thank you also to the audience for watching Sean in the Shed. Have a great weekend now and we'll see you next week. Bye for now. Bye. Thank you. The Productivity Minute was brought to you by the Institute of Productivity. Go to www.instituteofproductivity.com for more information. Mm -hmm.